in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, I am joined by my good friend and co-hosts, both of them, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania here. I've got Chad Robinson on. Chad, how are you doing, sir? Doing well this evening. And from Spokane, Washington, we've got Brian Fry as well. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm doing just fine. So... It's the Christmas time. We're doing a, an offbeat, darker Christmas movie, but let's uh, ask, uh, what are some happy moments there? What was your favorite Christmas gift you got? Brian, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I got like a 9,000-pound, uh, you know, yard-tall-and-wide gateway computer. It's my first computer ever back when I was in junior high school. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. It had like 128 like kilobyte memory. I mean, it was a monster for not a whole lot, but that was really cool at the time. Oh yeah, with the cow spot box and everything. Mm-hmm. Chad, what was your favorite Christmas gift? I think mine has to be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles party wagon. I love that thing growing up. I was a big Turtles fan, had all the action figures, but the party wagon was great to have. That's the thing that had, like, the door, like, the, the van that, like, had the door that swung out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and had, a, like, a pizza launcher up top. Yes, yes. I was also a proud owner of this. That was that was great fun. That's a great choice. For me, it would be my first video game system. After being, uh, from the time of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, NES, all the way up through Super Nintendo, all the way up to, uh, finally... I, uh, after asking for a video game system every year of my life, uh, for birthday and for uh, Christmas, I finally, in 1996, Christmas, got the Nintendo 64, and uh, I was pretty psyched. So uh, it was a, a long, dry run of no video games until then. So uh, it's not true. I had a video. I had a Game Boy, but no console video game system so the nintendo 64 blew my mind as we mentioned it's holiday time other things that you like what is your favorite holiday treat to eat brian you know i'm i'm like a closet eggnog person i'm really do like eggnog i just don't tend to drink it a lot because of the enormity of the caloric intake that it is but uh yeah eggnog is one of my favorites why are you drinking it in the closet there's lots of other people who enjoy it (laughs) You know, the first time I ever had eggnog was at one of your wife's parties back in high school. That uh, I don't doubt it. And uh, Chad, what about you, man? What's, what holiday treat do you enjoy? Uh, so my wife makes cookies every year and just a ton of Christmas cookies. But there's one in particular. It's called an Inside Out Oreo. And it's just smushed up Oreos, like cream cheese, and then it's covered in a white chocolate. And they're frozen and they're delicious. Uh, you take them out of the freezer, and they're just these little cake balls that are great. And I look forward to them every year. I've had them before. They're they're rich, by the way. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, you, you could you could easily overdo that one. Uh, you could overdose. Uh, I'm going to say cookies as well. Uh, I grew up making, uh, we call them cookie canes, where you roll out the dough and then they, they look like uh, cookie canes, so uh, or candy canes that are cookies. So they're striped red and white or striped green and white, and uh, they kind of have a peppermint taste to them. I love them. They're soft, and uh, they just and they're kind of coated with this uh, sugar coating. So the cookie cane is mine as well. And then um, last one, what is your favorite Harold Ramis film? So I don't overlap myself and, and pick the movie we're listening to. I'm going to go uh, with uh, Caddyshack. Ah, great choice. That's mine as well. So I'm going to second that. What about you, uh, Chad? I might get some flack for this, but I'm actually a really big defender of Bedazzled. Wow, over uh, over, over okay. Ghostbusters and National Lampoon's Vacation? and uh, Oh, I was just going by things he directed. These are but, things uh, that he directed. Groundhog Day? Mm-hmm. Well, he directed Groundhog, but not uh, not Ghostbusters, I didn't think. But yeah, uh, you can't beat Liz Hurley. I'm sorry. You're right. He did not direct Ghostbusters. He just wrote it. Sorry. Good point. Um, so so you're, going with, you're going bedazzled. Okay. You are a Liz Hurley fan, and I, I am too, but uh, I'm, I'm going to stick with Caddyshack and Brian on this one. So today, it's Christmas. But uh, we, we're, we're about to leave the good tidings behind. This is a darker, more offbeat uh, Christmas episode. It's a uh, noir Christmas, you could say. Brian, what is the movie we're doing today? The movie The Ice Harvest. Ice Harvest comes out in 2005. It grosses $1.6 million in the theaters, and that's not a strong showing, but it goes on to have a total gross earnings of $8.3 million, so it gets money through rentals and playbacks later, so it's, uh, it's not a failure. It places at 184th in the box office as far as its theater returns, placing it just behind Christmas with the Cranks, which is another Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good one, by the way. And coming ahead of uh, Vera Drake. The number one movie from 2005 is Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Uh, It made considerably more money. IMDb uh, rates the Ice Harvest is 6.3. However, the critics of Rotten Tomato is not a fan of this. They give it a 47%, and the audience score is not much uh, better at 43%. So, people are not a fan of this movie. Uh, why is that, Brian? Is it fair? I don't really think that many people watch this movie. I think maybe a couple people had to to make a rating, and I don't really, I don't understand the criticism. This is a movie that I caught accidentally and ended up watching the entire thing. And I was like, why have I never heard of this? It has good pedigree in terms of who directed it. And uh, I found it hilarious. Now, I've been accused of having a really dark sense of humor. So maybe I just liked it more than most people. But uh, the mixture of the cast and who they're playing and then just my enjoyment of the script. I thought this was a phenomenal movie. So you came across it. Uh, in theaters or did you come across it like just at a rental store or something? Oh no, it was, no, it was much later. It was on HBO or something. And I was like, Oh, this has got a good cast. Let's watch this. And then I was like, what? So you've returned to it uh, since then? Oh yeah. I own it. Okay. Uh, in multiple formats. Yeah. Chad, what about you? What was your background with the ice harvest? Uh, my background was fry using a quote that I really didn't get. I was, uh, I think it was actually the one I, I hosted in. Fry said the Wichita Falls poem. It's like, well, that was an odd thing to say for a movie quote. 
com- went completely <laughs> over my head. And then we had to watch this movie. And I was like, oh, yep. Yeah, that makes sense. That's where that came from. So Brian's done that a couple of times. Uh, he said, what's your boggle? And I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. And uh, later on, uh, we did uh, Demolition Man. And I was like, oh, that's definitely what's your <laughs> See, boggle. Okay. Yeah, that's that's always my goal. Is like I I would love to have every podcast reference a quote I did at some point in time. Otherwise, no, that's that's a good point. And uh, I always like that you keep us guessing on where the quote's coming from or what was that from. Might need to fire up the yeah, Google right? search on that. So I love that. Never stop. The for me, I'd never heard of this movie until it got shortlisted. And I like John Cusack. I feel like he takes a variety of projects, and I uh, I tend to like him. And when I saw his name on this, I said, I'm all on board. And then the previews also gave me optimism, knowing that it was Harold Ramis. And I I thought there could be a humorous side here. And there is humor. It's just not not, uh, exuberant humor. Uh, so I, I didn't necessarily get what I thought I was going to get judging by the previews, but I, I did have an interesting time. If, if, if nothing else, I was, I was certainly entertained. Uh, I, I still have mixed feelings on this one as we will get into, as we go on to this, but I, I did, I think I enjoyed it. Does that make sense? I, I think it's important on this one and, and I'm not making a plea for like, Oh, if you liked it once and didn't like it, you should try to watch it again. This is one of those movies that I keep noticing new and different little cues in that I'm like, oh, that's this. So there's a whole lot of subtlety in this movie that doesn't really come out on the first watch. So in your situation where you're saying, I think I like this movie, I would highly recommend you know letting it settle for a while and then rewatching it again. Because this most recent watch through, I noticed something that I had never noticed before. Okay. I did watch it twice, I should say that. But I watched okay, them literally well. like one night and then the next morning. Uh, so uh, they there was no settling, marinating, or coming back to it. Gotcha. I didn't ask you, Chad. Did you enjoy this movie? I did. Yeah. This really kind of reminds me of Boondock Saints, which holds a special place in my heart. That was you know, one of those dark comedies that I was introduced to at the right age. That was like a go-to at high school gatherings. So it, it really reminded me of that. And uh, as Fry was explaining to me, I, I do agree with him. It's a little lighter than Boondock Saints, but it still kind of has that same dark tone. Okay. Yes. Everything's lighter than Boondock Saints pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it has its like little moments, but I mean, this, this I felt like it kept some of the levity throughout the movie. That's that is fair, and there is humor here. I didn't want to act like there was no humor to be found. I I just might have gone in hoping for a little more humor. I gotta let people know, there's gonna be spoilers that lie ahead. We're gonna talk about Ice Harvest in detail, so if you're spoiler adverse, you might want to go watch the movie and come back and enjoy us. We'll be back after these messages. Merry Christmas, Santa Claus here. And if there's one thing I like, it's cookies. If there's two things I like, it's cookies and the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Ho, 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 ho. Santa's here to ask you all to be good little girls and boys this year and go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to the show. Give it a five-star review and rating. Also, give the Retro Movie Roundtable a like on Facebook. Ho, ho, ho. Tell the guys what you think of the show and the movie of the week. Let them know your thoughts. Write to the show at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com and tell a friend about the show. I told Rudolph, 
All the good little boys and girls who do this will be very happy on Christmas morning, and the show will grow and improve with your help. So go to bed early on Christmas Eve and have yourself a oh 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 Merry Christmas. And we're back. And for those of you who have not seen The Ice Harvest, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. This is your final warning. Chad, can you give people a refresher who have not seen The Ice Harvest since 2005? I'm so excited. I haven't gotten to spoil a movie in a really long time. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is me getting to do my thing. All right. So on Christmas Eve, yes, this is a Christmas movie, mob lawyer Charlie Arglis, played by John Cusack, and his crooked businessman and partner Vic steal $2 million from mobster Bill Gerard. The roads are too icy to make a clean getaway, so they split up to evade Gerard, and Vic takes the money. Charlie lets Renata Crest, who's a strip club manager and crush of his, know about the money and she offers to run away with him, but only after stealing an incriminating photo of her and Vic. Charlie succeeds, but must run away from mobster Roy Gillis. He runs into his misogynistic drunk friend Pete and eventually borrows, in air quotes, uh, Pete's car after Pete pukes in his. Uh, Pete married Charlie's ex-wife, so it's fine. Uh, he heads over to Vic's house, finding Vic's wife has been killed. Uh, Vic shows up and tells Charlie Roy killed his wife, and he's now locked in a trunk. Uh, not not the trunk of a car, an actual physical trunk. So they, they take Roy to the docks to dispose of him, but Roy shoots Vic through the trunk. Guess it wasn't the head end that Vic had shot. Uh, and then is shot dead by Vic. Charlie realizes Vic would have betrayed him and lets Vic drown after the shootout. Unfortunately, Charlie doesn't know where Vic hid the money, and Vic's now dead. He returns to Renata, who has been tied up by Bill. Charlie manages to kill Bill, you guys see what I did there, and rescue Renata. Uh, it turns out she had the money all along. Oh, it's a movie named Kill Bill. That's funny because this is a movie podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Russell. <laughs> Thank you for bailing me out there. Uh, it, it turns out she had the money and was planning on running away with Vic. Charlie promptly shoots her as she attempts to stab him during a hug. It's fine. I mean, she's going to murder him anyways. So on his way out of town, Pete wakes up in the back of the borrowed Mercedes and he and Charlie drive away together with the money. Lovely. Well, not lovely necessarily, but thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was uh, concise, informative. That was well done. Brian, what drew you to this movie that uh, helped put it on Chad and I's radar? You go first, man. This was something I kind of happened upon, and I've got like a small list of movies that I've seen in my life where I went into my day not expecting to really enjoy something and then got blown away by something. And I don't want to overstate, you know, this movie has its flaws. It's not, you know, there's a reason Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 47%. It's probably not for everybody. But the mood I was in at the time... Getting to watch something like this, you know, cold, never heard of it before. It it's just it that part of it made a big impression on me because I was like, oh, this is an awesome movie. Why have I never heard of this? So in the tradition of Fargo and you know other black comedies, it's just I mean it's just so so dark, but it's also very lighthearted and that cynical. It's just a it's an entertaining movie. No, that's a great point. Fargo's a good comparison, by the way. I, I, I got done with Fargo, and I was like, I don't know what to think about this movie. That I had the same reaction <laughs> to that. 
I think this movie's funnier than Fargo, personally. Now, what, as far as the story goes, what's working for you? Well, I like the idea of the duality between Charlie Arglis's Cusack's character and uh, Billy Bob Thornton's Vic Cavanaugh. That's that they're kind of play off each other and how they, in some ways, change places uh, midway through the movie, and who Charlie is when he ends it is a lot of fun to me in terms of you know just seeing two characters kind of fade into one another and only one passing out the other side. And then once he does that, it's still, you know, he's still a good guy in a way. And it's really hard to say for his character in this movie. But what he does for Pete, you know, he's trying to, you know, try to do something right for his kids, even though he's probably three sheets to the wind at that point. Even as he's leaving town, eventually at the end of this movie, the bouncer at the strip club who's broken down on the side of the road, you know, he's standing there saying, Charlie, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But you might be the nicest guy I know. And this is after he's killed two people and, well, three people, really, and uh, stolen, stolen $2 money. Million. <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, I guess you can even make a, a small Robin Hood parallel here if you take it from the standpoint that he's keeping the money and not giving it to somebody else. But uh, I don't know. This There's a lot of depth to this movie that I think that a lot of the reviewers who gave it 47% didn't take their time to really let soak in. I think there is more there than that 47%, and I, I, I'm with you. I, I think there are worse movies that get better reviews than this, and I, I feel like this one got written off unfairly. Chad, as far as the story goes, what are your, what are your takes away with the plot of this? It's all an engine for Charlie and Vic and kind of their misadventures, I guess. And I like that. I really like Billy Bob Thornton when he's playing kind of the scumbag role. Uh, He does it really well in Bad Santa and things like that. And to Brian's point, I I liked... I don't know that I'd necessarily call it the redemption because, again, he's running off with $2 million. But uh, the the slight character improvement of Charlie throughout the movies and the, the growth. So it was a lot of fun seeing them together and... Just the, the side characters like Pete were a great time along the way. I would want to call attention to the uh, as Wichita Falls, so falls Wichita Falls. The uh, line that comes throughout this movie, I'm sure, I'm, sh- I, I'm not going to take anybody's thunder. This is very likely to come up again in uh, the superlatives. But it's one of those things that's a big part of the story and comes up. What was your takeaway on that? Because when I first started watching this, I was like, what is the meaning of that? And the only thing that I kind of came away with that was it's just causality one thing will lead to another in the storyline brian did you have any other takes on what why that was so present throughout this movie well at first it starts being kind of a funny thing that keeps coming up with john cusack like why do i keep seeing this and why is this the first time i'm seeing this and then you see other characters quoting it and there's actually something that that connie nelson's character says later on in the movie that has that same kind of sing song to it and this last watch through, I noticed her say it, which leads me to believe that she's actually the one writing that on everything. And that's even more interesting because it's in the men's restroom of her bar. Huh. I'm going to try. I'm going to trust you on who, who's the one writing it. I just assumed this was something that was going around Wichita. It's interesting. Wichita Falls is in Texas and Wichita is in Kansas. So they're not necessarily 
connected. So those are two separate towns. It's just, like you said, it sounds good. Chad, did you find anything else within this theme that was reoccurring? The things I had read implicated Charlie, that he had been the one writing it all along. But yeah, it, it was a side thing for me. It didn't matter too much. It's why I didn't really mention it in my plot summary. I just thought it was a fun thing to to repeat. And I, I think Charlie kind of took it to heart as just the corruption all around him. I mean, he was a mob lawyer, so he's just talking about all the corruption that he's seeing. Well, it's also worth noting that the song lyric is actually from a Pat Metheny song from 1981. My take on this is because, you know, Charlie Arglis is the first one to notice it in the men's room, and he says it out loud, and he's kind of got that quizzical, like, what the heck is this? And then he sees it again on the payphone he uses from the bar. So the only time he actually writes it is after he's killed Connie Nelson's character. Yeah, after Renata dies. Mm-hmm. There's a early part of this movie that seems like it's going to play a prominent role, and it, it's a photo of the councilman with a stripper I, I, or a prostitute, and obviously it's politically incriminating, and it turns into a blackmail thing. John Chusack's character, Charlie, steals this picture trying to impress Renata, but this really falls out of the loop later. Is this a loose end, or did I miss something in my two passes through this? <laughs> I, I mean, it was just a, a plot point of helping Renata out. What is the greater meaning of this part of it? Because I, I, was, I was sitting there going, like, why did we keep this in here? Like, do, did it mean something more? Like, it just seemed to me like a loose tangent. I think it was just her sending him on an errand, kind of proving that he lusted after her. Yeah. He's her puppet? Yeah, that he would do anything for her. Okay, okay. I think it's all a symptom of loss of inhibition. Like, he just did this thing. He knows he's not going to be there much longer. Why not try to score with the girl he's in love with on his way out of town? Because who cares if he steals the picture from Vic now? Vic's not going to use it either. So it's it's a nothing-to-lose thing that's indicative of what... Billy Bob Thornton's character is criticizing him for all night. It's like, stop doing this stuff that clearly means you're not going to be here much longer. That's fair. I, I Sorry, I was looking for greater meaning within that because it seemed like it was going to play a prominent role early on. I was hoping the hitman would get involved from the councilman and then the gangs. I, I, I was hoping for another layer to unfold in this later in the movie, and it didn't, and I was kind of let down as a result of that. I was like going, oh, oh, that was the, the councilman's out. Well, you know, the councilman's completely screwed at this point, too, because now there's been a cop murdered, a mob boss murdered, and the club owner murdered all in the same room of the safe that that picture now is in. So that means the police are totally going to find that picture. For sure. Yeah. Oh, no. We, we, I, I did think he was screwed. Blackmail fee also seemed low. They said five digits, and when you're walking around, just $2 million. I'm not saying... He said low five digits. I was sitting there going, like, I don't know, man, another $10,000 doesn't seem like it's worth the uh doesn't seem like it's worth it when you're walking around to uh two million two point one million dollars in cash in a in a briefcase so i don't know those cops seem pretty lax about a, a lot of things they may have let this <laughs> the, big mob lawyer yeah <laughs> this this cop is almost as lenient as the cops in super bad yeah <laughs> pretty much Put a good name out for me. Officer Tyler. What is it? Taylor? Uh, that's okay. I never can think of the guy from Sonic's uh, 
name in the commercials anyway, so uh, I didn't know. I, mm-hmm. I don't remember that actor's name either, so it, I, I have that real-life problem with him, too. I was like, I feel like I know this guy from something, and sure enough, Sonic commercials. Oh, man. I'm sure he'd want better. Brian, I know you're a big book guy. The DVD I had had an interesting interview between the screenwriter and the author. Did you happen to see any of this and or did you read the book Ice Harvest? I actually haven't read the book for this one, so shame on me. But um, no, I just thought it was interesting that uh, Scott Phillips uh, initially was convinced that he couldn't adapt it to a, a movie and then read it a second time and was like, okay, we can do this. Yeah, that's he did think that, but screenwriter Richard Russo and Robert Benton, the guys who did the screenwriting on this, said it was very compact. It had a strong through line. It was confined in space and time. It happens all in one night. Like that's like a grand slam for a movie, and so like they they saw great opportunity for it. So interesting the insecurity that Scott Phillips had, uh, the author, for it because it it did turn out to be okay. So. I just thought it was interesting. Richard Russo also said, anytime you're going to do a novel, you're going to be reductive. So you're going to take something that people take a couple weeks to read and you're going to boil it down in two hours. So you're going to be looking for things to strip out. And as you're going through the book, he said, you just have to be careful. So often people will pressure you to take out the thing that attracted people to the story in the first place. So they wanted to capture a number of things from this movie, but this is a much dirtier book than here. It's It, it, it lives in the minds of Charlie, who's lusting after uh, Renata and he's hanging out in these strip clubs and so certainly the uh, the scenery is unsavory that in the company he keeps is unsavory but the book is f- far more off color or uh, lives in the x-rated world a little more so it's a dirty book dirty book one thing that I thought was interesting about Charlie is that he takes the path of least resistance always I think that was interesting that uh, Cusack I guess, said that to Scott Phillips, and he thought of that as like, wow, that's how I always thought of it as I was writing him. And so he was excited that Cusack had picked up on this construction of the character. And you do see that. It's not just Renata in there. You see him getting pushed around by pretty much everybody he comes across, uh, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there there are implications of that's why he lost his wife and why, why Pete's there. And yeah, he's he's just getting pushed around by Vic and by Renata and everyone else uh even even Sydney uh, who he stops and helps kind of did he hit hit him or I can't remember I think he hit him with the RV it's like the when he pulled yeah when the like parking brake popped or something it went back a foot or something knocking him down but while he was in the process of writing as Wichita Falls so falls Wichita Falls on the back of the camper yeah even within a scene, though, he will be pushed around in more than one direction. You'll see that, like, as Vic on that docks, or when they're trying to dispose of the hitman, Roy Gellis, he's being convinced to do something he doesn't really want to do because he's feeling uneasy about the situation. And then Roy Gellis gets out of the box and he's starting to, he's like, give me a hand, help me up. And like, he's actually doing it. And so he's gone from listening to Vic to Roy, back to Vic, and then He's this very malleable character, which it's interesting because you don't tend to think of uh, when story construction, you don't tend to think of your protagonist being such a mm, weak spirited um, um, pushover kind of character that doesn't necessarily make you think the hero of the story. I think uh, he has an autopilot function to be helpful, especially around people who are... um probably considered more alpha so i definitely agree with that 
But I also think that, you know, as uh, Randy Quaid mentions later in the movie when he asks her, you know, who are you really going to run off with? The dick with no brains or the brains with no dick? I think he's always sort of thinking this through. And Roy Gillis's main point is to kill Vic. That's who he sees as dangerous to him. So he helps him out of the trunk and basically watches, you know, them face off. And that gives him enough time for fate to step in, which eventually, you know, ends up saving him. Good point. Chad, this movie is a dark comedy of sorts. Where is the humor for you in this? What, what parts were you finding funny? The dialogue back and forth between Vic and Charlie is great. We'll probably talk more about the Roy in the trunk scenes and just trying to get him to fit in the car, so I won't spoil too much of that. But really, their interactions as foils and buddies and just co-conspirators and how especially Vic is just talking down to Charlie or talking down to really everyone. Billy Bob Thornton does a great job of being this smarmy guy. Oh, yeah, he's definitely, he's always a great jerk or slimeball. That, that is so his wheelhouse. Funny he's done two of these off-the-beaten-path off Christmas movies because he's also Bad Santa. Yep. I feel like Bad Santa got a lot more publicity than this, though. Like, it was much more widely rev, uh, revered as a dark comedy than, than this one. Bad Santa's a nicer guy than Vic, though. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's even more of a slimeball in this one. Um, so I can't believe he didn't bring this one up. Uh, I know Brian's going to go to him. Uh, Three Musketeers movie, I have, or the Three Musketeers episode that we did with Ryan earlier this year. You, you professed great uh, love for Oliver Platt, Brian. I'm guessing he's a big part of the reason why this was a hit for you and part of the humor you like. So if you could have like a trinity of actors who you're p- getting them to play who they should play to be their absolute best in a movie... They did this trio so well. Like, Arglis's character matches Cusack so well. Thornton's Vic is really well done. And Oliver Platt's... You could make the statement that he is here for comic relief, and it would be utterly true. But he also has some amazingly insightful statements throughout this movie that are important to what Charlie ends up doing in the end. So... In the same vein as Three Musketeers, you could say that the three of them, in role, really made this movie special, even though no one else thought it was special. Huh. Oliver Platt, you're right, he plays a drunk that isn't just a goofball, which tends to be what you get when somebody's absolutely beyond the pale drunk. And uh, in this case, you're right, he is, he's laying down... uh, moments that are undoubtedly going through his mind but as well as charlie's mind of like where do i fit in the world here in the town and like what am i doing in life and it's i guess you could call it a bit of a midlife crisis like of like where do i fit into the system and i don't think i like where i am in life sure i even like his whole musings on it's like let's just do it or let's go out in a blaze of glory like men like men charlie for me another one of the pieces of humor that i just loved and this one, I liked him more the second time through. Is Sydney, the I guess keeper of the strip club, uh, the Sweet Cage, he is mm-hmm. uh, on the phone in the beginning, yelling at a, a toothless, uh, let's call it hoe, and um, <laughs> and then and then moments later he goes, 
I gotta go, Mom. And then he goes to break up a bar fight. <laughs> the, the, the horrible things he calls his mother and the way that he kind of uh, refers to her and through this is an ongoing funny thing. Again, with the RV at the end, the anger that he has towards his mother for lending him the RV but not putting any gas in it. And his anger or management of just like, I told you I was going to break his hand. Which is, I will break his yeah. fingers. Sydney cracked up pretty much throughout this movie, and I might have been able to use a little more from him in this one, so I, I, I liked him in that one. And then definitely some good product placement from uh, Mercedes in this one. The, the whole Mercedes-Lincoln debacle thing was very funny. Right. <laughs> I think Sydney was a fill-in for Oliver Platt when you literally couldn't, because of his inebriation, you couldn't really feasibly have Oliver play a standard role throughout it as a sidekick so when those scenes may have needed a little extra you had the ultra angry sydney and the strip club piece to kind of tide you over till the next oliver platt lunacy one thing i love about cusack and this is one thing i do like about cusack i mentioned that i'm a fan of him he's put into this rather crazy situation and he does the um, – he's your measuring stick. He's the closest to a regular guy because he's not comfortable with hitmen who break people's knees and make them turn both ways, as he said. And he's surrounded by all of this darkness around him, but at the same time, he really doesn't have much of a stomach for it. I just like that because, I mean, perhaps there's there's some of me in that of just like, man, you, you would be uneasy going through all of this. And th- I think that uneasiness is where a lot of the humor comes from and uh, as it unfolds. And I'm a little surprised because I know you said you don't, you're not a fan of Ben Stiller, Brian, and you don't like the cringeworthy humor. A lot of the humor that I see that Cusack's doing here is he's being put into an uncomfortable situation where you're just like, oh, no, you're in over your head kind of thing. The only thing that I really... The, the only part of this movie that I ever have a hard trouble or a hard time with is when he takes Oliver Platt home to Christmas dinner. Like that's, that's <laughs> that, that whole scene. I'm like, Oh God, this is bad. Oh, it's bad. Most of the rest of it is just kind of, a, the problem with Ben Stiller is look at all the bad things that happen to me and they end up bad. Everything that happens to Cusack in this ends up coming out. All right. That's a good point. Like he just, he just found a thumb in a vice he thinks Vic's dead he thinks Roy's out to get him he has no money he's driving drunk he pulls over to the side of the road he throws up off a bridge the cop pulls him over for the second time he hits his head on a sign and the cop's like nah you're good man (laughs) remember my name to Mr. Gerard you know what I mean like it's not like the problem with stiller movies is they just pile on and pile on and pile and he doesn't win like the, th- the thing about this is all these awful things happen and he's just, he's, it's like God looks after kids and drunks and it's true. Like that's like the, the underlying moral of this movie is like someone's looking after this guy because all of this stuff could have gone wrong and it never did. So I would, I would say it's the antithesis. Okay. I, I don't mind cringe, cringing humor. So I don't, I, I liked that part of it. That to me is the humor of like seeing this guy put into these awkward situations of like. Oh no, I'm in over my head kind of thing. I like that. I was curious to see that. So you're just saying it's it's not so piled on. This this is the right medium for you. It's get, it's give and take. He he's constantly swaying between yeah, I did it and oh, and this good thing happened, but this bad thing happened. Like there's a mix. It's not just a constant dung heap. With that, why don't you give us a cast rundown? We've we've talked we've talked about a couple of them so far, but uh, just uh, for formality's sake. 
Sure, and I'm I'm just gonna touch on the really important people. There's there's some ancillary characters here that are important for a scene or so, but I'm not really gonna uh, sit on them. So you have John Cusack's Charlie Arglist. You have Billy Bob Thornton's Vic Cavanaugh. You've got Ned Bellamy's Sydney. You have Connie Nelson's Renata Crest. You have Mike Starr's Roy Gellis. And I gotta tell you, he's another just gem in this movie that basically once he's introduced and he's not in it for much, but I feel like he fills up a large chunk of this movie just because it's probably my favorite chunk of the movie. He filled up a large chest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've got Oliver uh, Platt's Pete Van Houten. I'll toss in David uh, Pacacy's Councilman Williams, just since we talked about it already. Yeah. Uh, Those are good picks there. And maybe Brad Smith is Ronnie. (laughs) Okay, yeah. yeah. We had science, and I don't know, some other class together, I don't remember. Yeah, th- I was sitting there thinking on my second time through this movie, it's too bad Charlie doesn't like her instead, because uh, she's very quickly taken by somebody Ava- who available? gives her any positive feelings, <laughs> whereas Renata, you you know, he'll bend over backwards, move move heaven and earth, and she's still ready to slit his throat and double-cross him. She's, she is no good, and you know it every step of the way. You just know that he's not thinking with his head. He's thinking with his uh, something else. So uh, Too bad that he didn't like the... Uh, I forget the stripper's name in the beginning, but ends up causing the brawl. But uh, she's she's uh, she's grateful to have a guy who just say, I like you, for even just a moment. Yeah. She's like, yeah. we're getting married. Marrying a stripper always turns out well. It must, right? How could it not? Yeah. <laughs> and rusty i think was her name oh okay yeah R- R- rusty was the uh was the stripper that was another good piece of humor we didn't talk about that under the uh things that made you laugh i i i liked those two the, the guy who was just so jealous and uh they nailed that casting perfectly so she uh her name is uh laura phillips yep in the real world harold ramos offered the role the lead role of this to bill murray but bill murray did not get back to him on this one would you want to see Bill Murray in the role where Cusack is, Brian? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd watch it. Absolutely. What about you, Chad? Yeah, I, I think he could do it. It makes me sad. It it wasn't that he didn't get back in time. It's He, quite frankly, wasn't returning Harold Ramis's calls. They were still fighting from Groundhog Day. So that part makes me pretty sad. Yeah, but I don't think I would. I love Bill Murray. This is not... This might be too dark that i don't think bill murray's exuberant humor would shine here i'm not saying he couldn't do it but i actually feel like i like cusack here and i i mean bill murray is on my mount rushmore of comedic actors so i i rarely say this but i think i'm i think i'm happy with cusack here that just shows you the high esteem i have for john cusack I hear you. It'd be more his character in uh, Lost in Translation. That's see, that's not <laughs> the, the kind of Bill Murray I want. Though. The, the yeah, film I hear that you. keeps coming up on this podcast. I know. Yeah. Another interesting alternative casting. Monica Bellucci was initially signed to play the character of Renata, but backed out due to her pregnancy. So, Chad, would you want to see Monica Bellucci be Renata? I want to see Monica Bellucci in everything. Cast her in every movie even if it's an all-male cast i don't care cast monica belushi please well that's a resounding yes <laughs> uh, brian given given that in her body of work she has played in and around that type of role a couple of times i can see it i think that uh i just i i feel like that 
conniving look that Renata always has. Like you always know that she's like, I've got this guy on my finger. Yeah, she's no good. Yeah. I don't know. I it, Again, like Bill Murray playing uh, Charlie, I, w- I would watch it. But then in that scenario, if you were watching Bill Murray play Charlie Arliss and Monica Bellucci, like flirting with him, like fake flirting with him, could you see that? Because it starts getting a little rough for me at that point. Yeah, the, the age might be a little off there, but she's pretty versatile. I mean, she's played Mary. Uh, I loved her role in The Matrix. Yeah, I don't think she could. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm not think. I'm not seeing any red flags for no on this one. I think she could do it. Um, I mean, she she was great with Daniel Craig in uh, was that Spectre that she was in. Yeah, that was the last time I saw her in a movie, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of cool. All right. Yeah, I was like, still got it. Dear Diary, jackpot. Yeah, what an awkward scene that was, though. <laughs> <laughs> we were back to the Sean Connery. No means yes. Oh, what is happening here? Yes, that one was. You and I, Brian, were talking about a little bit of the uh, back and forth between Oliver Platt and Charlie's character in this. And they were going back and forth and having these, you know, introspective moments about, you know, again, midlife crisis kind of stuff. And uh, Thornton was saying that, I guess, in his talking with, you know, whether it be Ramus or the author, Scott Phillips, this isn't necessarily a change your life message of the movie. It's just pure entertainment. And, uh, I thought that was interesting. You rarely see an actor, I wouldn't say diminishing the work, but certainly just kind of saying like, this is just entertainment. Take it for what it is. I, I thought that was kind of refreshing for Billy Bob Thornton to say that in an interview. I love Charlie's monologue about where he's telling Pete about the difference between his father and his uncle. Oh, yeah. Both Charlie and Pete, at one point in this, have a great monologue about stuff. And that's another thing that I really like about this movie. If you were ever in a, let's say post high school, just because of the uh, content. But if you were ever in like a drama group or something, this movie is a goldmine of fantastic back and forths and good monologues. I want to see a PG-13 high school, no, uh, high school or junior high school, even better presentation of this to see them work around all the, uh, the things that they need to work around. That would be more humorous, actually. The strip club makes that really problematic. That's what I mean. I want to see. I want to see the censored version of mm. how hard this movie would be to censor, and and how how um, oh, yeah. how bastardized we, it would be when it, when it was all said and Vic, done. who owns multiple Dairy Queens. Exactly. I was thinking it's like he owns <laughs> ice cream parlors. <laughs> <laughs> Steal this incriminating picture of them eating at a different ice cream joint. Wow. Well, well here, you, here you see the manager of McDonald's secretly sneaking a Baconator. <laughs> this, <laughs> I actually really want to see this terrible, terrible junior high school play production now. <laughs> it's, it's so bad, I, I can't look away. Yep. And another interesting thing talking about the characters, going back to Oliver Platt's character, uh, Scott Phillips said when he wrote the book, the character who sleeps with his ex-wife is not necessarily his friend. In the book, this is a result of uh, the screenwriter uh, Russo was changing the character to be three characters got simplified down into one. And Scott Phillips actually liked it even better. He thought that that took on a really fun dynamic of, oh, we're still friends even though you've taken my house and my wife. And that's a very strange, strange notion. I've always thought it was strange that Elaine and Jerry Seinfeld can still be friends afterwards, but this takes it to a whole nother level of still being friends. Can I, can I give you my opinion on this one too? 
I think that Charlie, at least in the rearview mirror, views Pete as basically being the airplane countermeasure. Like, he was looking at getting shot down, and then Pete came along and kind of took that missile away from his tail. So I feel like it's a, it's a microcosm of what this movie is trying to say is he's had a lot of stuff intervene on his behalf, even though it seemed really bad at the time. Something intervenes in his life and takes that bad thing away. Just how you described it was essentially the, a Tim McGraw country song. He <laughs> 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 took my wife, he took my house, he took my truck or whatever else. But yeah, yeah, Pete's an interesting character because he, during one of his many monologues, he basically feels guilty about it. Like he doesn't deserve that place with the family. Jesus, Charlie, we were friends. Yeah. It's another inter- interesting duo that they have charlie play with so instead of just vic he's he's got this relationship with pete that's complicated but it's still got a lot of layers yeah now harold ramis great filmmaker and uh, writer especially he's he's got such a good mind for comedy this doesn't feel like what you think of with a harold ramis film does it chad i mean i mentioned bedazzled earlier so (laughs) so no groundhog day caddyshack National Lampoon's Vacation, Year One. Please leave Year One off. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's the one you're going to go after? He deserves it. But yeah, The Ice Harvest is just, it's a weird one on this list. It is. Caddyshack is also Multiplicity. Analyze that. I'm sorry, analyze this. Well, analyze that as well, but they're both both of them. But I mean, he even writes, he writes Stripes, writes Ghostbusters, Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, Meatball, National Lampoon's Animal House. I mean, this guy is in light, goofy humor, which is definitely my wheelhouse. And then out of nowhere comes this movie. Brian, it's a bit of an unexpected turn for him. Absolutely. But I mean, that's the kind of like, I feel like this is the kind of differentiation that you want in your work. Like, if you do a Caddyshack, if you do a uh, vacation, like, when you do those kinds of movies, to be able to show that you can do something a little bit darker, not just a little bit darker, a lot a bit darker, this is, I I would even put this probably in a list of top favorite mob movies, just because it crosses that line well. I mean, this is, I mean, I think the the mob portion of this is stand-up by itself. Because Harold Ramis' name was on this, and yes, I knew we were dealing with the mob, I honestly thought we were going to be a little more towards like something like Get Shorty. Mm-hmm. Once yeah. once we got into it, I was like, oh, this is going to be different than that. <laughs> I could tell probably within the first scene, to be honest with you. I, I could tell right away. I was going to say, probably from the strip club intro. Yes. But Ramis was saying in an interview that he finds humor in the people who have lost any meaning in their lives. And Connie Nielsen also put it well when she said that this is just a story of people who are morally bankrupt and born to exploit one another and Ramis finds humor in within that and so surprisingly this is a dark form of humor but he said if he said and I quote uh, I find humor in grim existential realities of sadness that people believe that we're alone and that we're going to die alone and that we're responsible for every single thing we do this doesn't sound like the Harold Ramis I know so um but that's what lured him to it and uh, in a way he said that Hollywood movies represent the world that we want it to be and independent movies represent the world the way it is. And for him, this was something that enabled him to walk that line and to kind of go in towards that independent world, even though I, it's not fully independent. It, you're right, Brian. He was looking to test that out and go into this, but 
he saw humor and that's what drove him to it. I'll put it to you this way. If he ever did another movie that looked like it was walking down this road, I would see it in a heartbeat. It's a shame we lost him and we wouldn't see where else the later part of his career would have gone. As Chad mentioned, that year one is his leaving note for us. So I never saw that, but I heard it was bad. It's a stain <laughs> on everyone involved. I mean, it, 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 the people are good, but the movie's bad. And I don't know what to say about it. You know what? I'm just to pitch the idea, and you should leave this in. Pitch the idea. We should do one show a year where we take terrible movies that the audience forces us to watch okay oh so so we're a mystery science theater if we get enough, if we if we get if we get more than 10 suggestions in the email by the end of the year uh this is for 2020 so if we get more than 10 emails to retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com with bad movies and that doesn't mean one person gives us 10 bad movies that means 10 10 separate emails with a bad movie we'll draw from a hat and we'll take it from there, and we will do it. We'll just start that tally up now. So if you want to engage with us out there, I'll take Brian up on that. But Throwing down the hat, bring it on, give us your worst, and then you'll hear ours. So yes, <laughs> I guess year one could happen. Oh, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like closing doors. I don't like closing doors. We're leaving them all open. <laughs> we, talk, we talked about this the last podcast of how we try not to go the negative town but this may be a challenge <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> you're gonna have to find the good in it as, as part of the mandatory part of that though but uh yes scott phillips though it's interesting brian you come from a world of retail and i don't know if you feel like this or not author scott phillips was saying that he worked in retail and he hated the holiday season and he didn't like the same holiday songs that bring me great joy and stuff like that to him represented anxiety and long hours and stressful situations with customers he just didn't like Christmas so that's where this movie was coming from and it's actually interesting Harold Ramis was also identifying with that saying like you know I remember walking out one winter in Chicago which is he's a Chicago guy and it was rainy and cold and I just thought Christmas isn't always so you know how many times have we done the happy merry Christmas that comes in so many different packages and forms so it wasn't that much longer that Ice Harvest came along sure enough and it's this very rainy like I said almost noir kind of script Oh, it's, yeah, it's super noir. You know, it, it was kismet because Phillips had written that from a cynical, like, there's, there's no bright, hey, it's Christmas kind of moment in this, other than Cusack dumping some drugstore toys on his kid's present haul. Oh, uh, that led to one of the best quotes of the movie, though, where he's like, big spender, and he's like, you have kids? No. Shut the f*** up. <laughs> yeah, and I'll also say this, just coming from the retail side, this is a very, very stressful time of year for me. It's it's true. I I have a hard time sometimes dealing with the positive of Christmas because I see the shiny veneer of it from a retail perspective, which is often kind of a killer. And like I was telling you guys earlier before we uh, we started the recording, it's like I've worked for like the last 72 hours straight outside of just time for sleeping. And, you know, it's Black Friday weekend. I get it. But, you know, it's one of those things that when I get home and Jess has Christmas music playing on Pandora, I'm like, yeah, yeah, make it stop. <laughs> but it's the most wonderful time of the year, Brian, with the kids jingle back. I, I, 
That's, you know, and they, they gave me a reprieve last year. All of our in-store play was instrumental Christmas, which is so much better than like Holly Jolly, Blue Blue Christmas. Oh. I mean, oh, I, I'm telling you, like there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it to not drive your staff insane. And I got to tell you guys, sometimes I, I feel like it's Truman Show. Like they're just trying to find what could push me over the edge to make better entertainment for this television show that they're putting me through. Well, yeah, when I worked at Kohl's, what usually sent me over the edge was Paul McCartney simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Like, that is yep. just so repetitive. Yep. Although we it's, pulled out a brutal. male version a of Santa song. Baby. No, it's not. It is not a great song. But the male version of Santa Baby was probably the most confusing that I heard. That's not a good song. Yeah. Either, uh, either vocal stylings. And then there was the war against baby. It's cold outside. That was entertaining. I got to live through those complaints last season. <laughs> and which is funny because I I remember 10, 15 years ago, I made a comment saying, yeah, this is song's kind of not okay. And then I let it go. And then it's funny to me that it came back around to it. And I was like, oh, I said that once. Sorry, I went off the rails there. But I mean, it, it but it's true. It, and it pertains to this movie. It's, it's I think uh, uh, Vic said it best. No, Charlie, only morons are nice on Christmas. And I get to see that on a daily basis. Not the morons, the people not being nice on Christmas. Oh, man, I, I, I guess I'm the, I, I'm the sentimentalist of this group, and I, I like the, um, I love Christmas, and so. Oh, I'm not saying I don't. Please, don't hear that I don't like Christmas. I'm just telling you that there, there is a, a red X over one-third of Christmas that is like a no-go, no-fly zone due to the holiday retail season. There, yeah. there are two My. times of the year where I have a hard time finding uh, the episode to come together. And, and one of them is when Christmas comes around because uh, you guys are not Christmas movie guys. And uh, the other one's Valentine's Day. So uh, these are the two most challenging times of the year for me to say, like, hey, guys, there's a reason for the season. Embrace it. Let's do it. And instead, nope. uh, we do the, the ice harvest. My heart is three sizes too small for Christmas movies. Grinches, <laughs> all of you, Grinches. No, I, I, I'm not that way at all. Like, one of my favorite things to do every year is going out and cutting down a Christmas tree. Um, when I get home, in order to not drive me insane, just puts on, like, Celtic instrumental Christmas music. Can totally handle that. I'm just telling you that there's a certain portion of Christmas, like, pop culture Christmas, that is off limits once I leave work. Like apart because i really do like the holiday season one of the other things ramus was saying uh as just kind of a style of his direction a lot of the actors on this were saying like uh connie nielsen was saying like you know he was a very safe person to work with and that he was uh not in an in your face kind of person that he was very laid back you could throw stuff out there and that he would go along with it and ramus even says when you're young as a director you think you can control everything but Later on in life, you learn that it has more to do with who you hire and you put the best people you can around you. And you're more at the mercy of everything around you. Uh, you know, you're not really controlling everything. You're not necessarily the conductor as a director. You really are part of a giant production. An interesting perspective and a particularly non-pretentious one. Russ, do we lose you? No, I just... It's, oh, okay. You know, I hit the tennis ball. It's, it's, it's now bouncing in the corner <laughs> yeah, of the tennis we, court. We dropped the um, ball on that one. That was that was the fault, <laughs> yeah. Russell. Try again. Got to go pick it up again. 
These are Russell's co-hosts completely failing him. You're welcome. <laughs> I always hate it when Russ asks me a question. I've got like nothing but a one-word answer. <laughs> it's, it's like uh, Bruce Willis uh, with uh, Chris Tucker <laughs> in Fifth Element. <laughs> what do you think about that? What's up, That's man? You, you mean in the service? I guess. <laughs> yeah, we're sorry, <laughs> listeners. We're bad co-hosts. Bad co-hosts. It's not Russell's fault. Well, it is. He hired us for nothing. Uh, I'm probably going to leave this in now because this has been one of the most funny oopsies. But, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, Harold Ramis, you know, you can see that comedic nature of what he did, though. You can see the people who build on the jokes. And again, it shows itself more with the improv nature of something like a Caddyshack, obviously, or, or to be involved with a production like that. But, I mean, that he brought that sensibility to himself here and it made the people who we work with really enjoy working with him and just another reason why it's too bad he's gone indeed also ghostbusters 3 which is getting <laughs> filmed i'm very sad he won't be around for that now stylistically as far as the direction goes i said that there's there are noir elements uh chad why don't you take this one first do you see uh kind of a neo-noir element brick coming into this yeah, absolutely. They they don't go full almost uh, like Sin City with the coloration, but there's a lot of darkness around here. There's a lot of club action with men in suits, uh, a lot of shady backdoor dealings and dialogues about it. So yeah, I definitely picked up on the noir genre here. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of contrast in the lighting. And they did something that you don't have in noir movies, too, with these harsh fluorescent lightings and eerie greens and this and the neon lights of the strip clubs. It, it, it's all very gritty and dark. Like, this is not a world that I want to walk around in and inhabit, especially when you add in the cold and the fog from the ice, you know, and the rain. Burr. I was, I was curious, and I didn't... I, I thought about it when I was rewatching it for the podcast, but I didn't get around to looking up what the cinematographic word for when they do the the highlights across a character's eyes that they did for Renata so often in this that shows like deceit or stealth or you know kind of like the shadow I don't know if you ever saw the Alec Baldwin shadow movie low key lighting there's a yeah I bet I mean they literally just highlight a one inch by four inch section of Renata's face so often when she's talking and that's just one of those film elements, you know, the dun 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 kind of thing that uh, I really appreciated in this. As as Chad was saying, they could have steered harder into this one, but yeah, you're right, Brian. They're, they're, again, that's low key lighting. So, like, if you're watching a sitcom where everything's like illuminated and really bright and everything's in full focus in the background, that's high key lighting. And when you have low key lighting, this more like this movie where it's more focused. Now, as Chad pointed out, you can go more focused. And like the Maltese Falcon that we did earlier this year is an ex excellent example of that. But um, this is an interesting modern take on that. It's also different in that we did uh, L.A. Confidential earlier this year, too. And that was a California movie. And there was a lot of warmth in this, but there was like that dark underbelly of this Los Angeles, you know, happy, sunshiny area. It's interesting. This movie also does this neo-noir approach, but it's not done with the glamour. There's a Again, there's, there's dark, cheap grittiness to it. So 
um, making this even it's uh, just in your face ugly. Did you guys happen to see the alternate endings on this one? No, I did. Um, I'd actually kind of like to leave it at least as a little bit of a tease to those listeners who have already gotten the movie quote spoiled for them. Um, it, it actually is a separate thing that was uh, recorded a year after the initial production of the movie. And they've got a couple different, similar but different endings to this film that I think everybody would enjoy. One of which is uh, Charlie Arglis actually being run over by the Winnebago, killing him <laughs> at the end of the film. Oh. Yeah, it's a sobering oh, no. finish. I didn't care for that one. Yeah, so I, I definitely liked the way they did it. It was fine. Again, they had something bad happen to them, but they pulled back from it being a total, you know, it was like, that was bad. Oh, no, it was just funny. You know what I mean? Like, that. that's, I feel like they always pull back in this one, and that's one of the great things about this movie. I'm glad that they didn't go that route. There's another one, too, that for some reason goes in a flashback, as John Cusack's lying there on the ground, and you see the precursor to Vic and Charlie talking about planning this out, and you see Renata talking to them, and uh, you can see that she's kind of teasing and leading them on. Kind of unveiling all that would have happened that you don't see beforehand. Again, I'm not a fan of this. I thought this movie unfolds nicely, and I don't see the need to go back and show what we've learned already. It takes away kind of the mystery, and it's not that... It's not that um, insightful, like, Necessary. aha. Mo- yeah, didn't have that yeah. aha moment. So um, both of those alternate endings on the DVD that you can pick up, which I picked my DVD up for $1, by the way. That's a good dollar. That's totally worth four quarters. You could have spent that on an overpriced soda machine, but instead you got quality film. That's a right. steal. That's like two, $2.1 million from your boss kind of a steal. <laughs> so I- I'm glad they did the ending that they did. I agree. I think it was the correct one. Chad, this movie's written in 1979. Scott Phillips wanted the strip clubs to be even dumpier. He said uh, strip clubs turn into a more upscale place. Plus, this is he, as the author, was inhabiting a lot of these strip clubs at this point in time. So this was a world that he was familiar with. And so the writers just said, you know, what? why could we not put this in today's time? And he said having a cell phone would caused parts of the story to become easier too easy and so they had him slip on the ice and snap his phone in half thus creating an instance where he wouldn't have a cell phone but would you like to see this movie set in 1979 because i kind of would i'd be fine with that too yeah honestly it it doesn't matter to me i i kind of liked it being a more modern movie and yeah they did the horror movie hand waving of oh the phone doesn't work we've got to do something to get that out of the way but yeah, I, I was fine with everything being modern day. I don't think 1979 would change it much other than the aesthetics. Apparently movies don't market as well when you say that this movie happened in 1979 without like an actual event that like, you know, this is based on this kind of thing. And I don't get that because I kind of like to escape and even just traveling to a time that I'm just not that far away from when we were alive, but I, I still did not walk around in 1979 so i kind of think that's interesting i think i'm okay with it either way uh the the reason i say that is there are movies like the nice guys that i think are are, are great in their their time point um you can have a grittiness aspect to a movie like i mean even like toward the end of boogie nights or uh once upon a time in hollywood like all of that stuff works so i don't think they had to modernize it 
I actually think they could have left it along the lines of he tries to get a hold of Vic. Vic already hung up on him. He's now turned his phone off. Like, you didn't actually have to enter the scene of why his phone is broken. Like, you could have just said everybody's screening his calls at this point or whatever. I mean, he's already using pay phones and whatnot. And that's really not out of the realm. I mean, now it's hard-pressed to ever find a pay phone, but not then. The other thing that I thought was an interesting uh, change was Harold Ramis, Chicago guy. There was like there was a kind of a Chicago filmmakers movement at when this movie was being made, and so they made this in Chicago. It's set in Wichita. They still say it's set in Wichita, but Harold Ramis casually said, uh, "Nobody's been to Wichita or knows what it's actually like." So we just did this in the Chicago suburbs. It was close enough. And uh, so, like, the Sweet Cage is actually a defunct restaurant where Harold Ramis' family actually used to eat when he was a kid. And the flatware that they used there at that restaurant... Ah, uh, Bennigan's. Uh, <laughs> ...is where the restaurant where Vic was eating. So so it's just interesting that uh, they changed that. I kind of think that... Uh, I've been on the other end of this. Like, we're from West Virginia, and so if a movie's set in West Virginia and then they shoot it in Western Pennsylvania and they don't shoot those actual geographical places... It's kind of a bummer. I like it when the director actually goes out there. So I see what Harold's doing by bringing it to his town. But yes, it could have been anywhere. But I want to actually go to Wichita personally. The biggest defender I can think of that uh, in that respect was Mothman prophecies. So at one point, I was they, just about to bring that up. I was like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. They bring yeah, up the Charleston totally right. Marriott, which is. It, very nice, but the the shot Mothman prophecies is like this little shackish area, and you know we're all. It's like in the middle of nowhere. It, yeah, just so you know, like the Marriott is downtown. It's next to the Civic Center and the mall. It's all well lit all the time. They do a shot of this building in a field with nothing around it. It's like yeah. someone decided to build a Marriott. It was like the Sim City. Of Marriotts, it's like the one build. You had you had resources for one building, and you just decided to plant a Marriott in the middle of your field. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was very strange. It's a very populated. There are skyscrapers down where this Marriott is, so it was just a weird shot to take at Charleston, West Virginia's Marriott. I guess coming from that perspective, and I, I just feel like put it in Wichita. You know, it might not be eventful, but. This Wichita is a character within this, whether it be they say that, you know, uh, the the line of so Wichita falls, so falls, Wichita falls. As they say that over and over again, I feel like the the gangster references like, why did I go into this in this town? It, it, topless women sell everywhere else. But but here I, it's such a character. Put me in there. I won't show me what that Wichita is like. He's right. I haven't been to Wichita, but I still haven't been. And he just waved his hand and kind of got around it. Small little detail. I love how his, his like, daddy told me to go to the church, but I put my faith <laughs> in booze and broads. And I'm just sitting there like, that's a, like, that, that's tails. Like, honestly, like, like he's saying, go heads. You went tails. You went the whole 180 direction from what your dad said to do. But he regretted it. The interesting thing that I thought, one of the coolest things that they had to do was the, when they dump, the box for Roy, the hitman, mm-hmm. they had to construct a lake where there was no lake anywhere else. And so they went to a reclaimed site, so kind of like a mining kind of site. There was no lake. There was asphalt on the ground, so they ended up taking paraffin, which is a substance when you heat it up and then it cools back down. It ends up looking kind of like ice. 
and they dug down a like above grade pool but they dug down a trench and built walls around it to hold up a very small section of water at the end of a dock and they constructed a 60 foot long dock to be able to disassemble and go into this and so uh, to have the control that they needed to have it looks like they just picked a, a lake and went out there and did it but not at all the case it was very elaborate very a lot of work went into it they had all these mist sticks going around they were scattering ice around to be able to do it everything was very constructed about that so I was surprised how much trouble that they went to it, but I will say this, that's some of the best looking environments of the movie. Yeah, I didn't know all of that. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't want to go into uh, to superlative stuff, but that's a that's a good intro for it. Okay. I'll, you're, you're allowed to hold back. Plead the fifth, that's fine. Other thing I like, I, I, I love the wardrobe that that Cusack's character gets. It reminded me of Gross Point Blank when he was a very sharp dressed guy walking around this small town and sure enough here he he stands out and it doesn't help anymore when Oliver Platt calls him over he's like this is the best mob lawyer around <laughs> Charlie Agnes yo yo mofo it, it's just interesting for the genders I mean most of the women are in a state of undress or some form of sexy costume and all of the men that I can think of are in full suit or uniform and they're all dressed up, even if they're... they're Except peat. Sydney. Well, yeah, Sydney. <laughs> That's a good point. Oh, break his fingers. You are right. Vic Vic is coming from a very uh, underbelly world kind of thing, so he's, he's surprisingly well-dressed for a pornography producer and supplier. Yeah, and Pete's drunk as can be, but still in full suit. And uh, even, as you, it's a good point, a well, good thing that you point out, uh, he looks like he's a little more gangster put together. Randy Quaid, when he plays Bill Garrard, he obviously has a suit on as well. And so, uh, which is mob-like, but you're right. A lot of suits in this. Well, they're, they're the upper echelon of that smaller town. Yes. Like that was the, the nice, probably the nice restaurant, the nice bar. Obviously, count, there's a councilman there. Like uh, Pete's a big developer, Charlie... Arglis is a big mob lawyer. Big mob lawyer. <laughs> Soundtrack. Chad, what do you think? What do you, what do you think on this one? A solid. Eh. <laughs> I mean, there was there was just nothing to write home about here. It's it's almost all Christmas songs. Well, there's definitely some drab score to go with this as well. Oh, sure, but it's like literally intermixed with just a ton of Christmas carols. I mean, First Noel was yeah. in it, Little Drummer Boy was in it, Silent Night was in it, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. I think they're doing that to show you the juxtaposition that this happy time of the year is here, but these people are so empty and sad themselves, and I think that the, the happy music... Even the, ch- even the Chipmunks was in it, man. <laughs> Most of these songs you named, I absolutely just auto-tuned it out of my head when they came on. It's just instinct from retail years ago. So I, it, if my mind registered it, it was half a second. It's great when there's theft, fraud, and murder to it, though. Like, yeah. that's that's one of the things that, like, the dichotomy of the movie. It's like, this is this is the holiday spirit, and it's just all these people trying to dupe each other. I thought the score when they were headed up the mountain to the lake and then the, being on the docks of the lake, I thought this was good score work here. It's not as persistent throughout the whole movie, but when the movie reaches its climax, I think the soundtrack lives up to its best point. So inconsistent, but good in the high points. So there's something to be said for that. Look for this, chat. Argulist means guile or deceitfulness in German, which kind of embodies Charlie. 
Nice. And Brian, look for this. Roy in the trunk. I love every part of the trunk sequence from when Charlie's introduced the trunk to when they figure out there's a gun in the trunk to them trying to put it into the back of two different cars to them driving it to the lake and then eventually him getting out of the trunk and getting into the lake. I, it, it, nope. Every turn I'm thinking, how does he have a gun? How's he positioning that gun in the trunk? Wouldn't if he fired the gun in the trunk, wouldn't he like, I I feel like there would be a pressure wave with that. Wouldn't that actually harm him? Like I was constantly trying to figure out the physics of the trunk. (laughs) How's he going to reload in there? (laughs) And for my look for this is going to be Oliver Platt is an architect. He said that he's drawing a lot of buildings and making a big old fortune. Uh, only he uses a few expletives in the middle of that. But, uh, as an architect, I was like, oh, cool. And it doesn't work that way. Most architects don't uh, rock around uh, having an amazing house and drive a Mercedes and, you know, live a life of luxury. So uh, Russell does, however. You have no idea what you'd be making in Wichita Falls. It's tr- I was going to say, I can almost assure you there are not very many architects in Kansas doing this. So It's my favorite time of the show, Movie Superlatives. Chad, are you ready? I'm ready. Brian, are you ready? I was born ready. Brian, you led us to this movie. I'm going to give you the honor of going first. Who is your MVP of The Ice Harvest? Oliver Platt, hands down. I knew Love you were going to do it. I knew it. Always will. <laughs> I, dude, I, I, I can't help it. I mean, his character in this is hilarious. Like it's, it's the best. So, yeah. Number one fan of the Oliver Platt fan club. Listen, if you haven't gone out and treated yourself to an evening of Lake Placid... Do it for you. <laughs> Brian needs a whole platter of Oliver Platt. Whole platter. Whole platter. Chad, who's your MVP? John Cusack. Uh, I We talked about Bill Murray, but it, I think Cusack's kindness as Charlie kind of comes through, and he's a despicable character, but that kindness lends you enough weight that you actually care about <clears throat> him and want him to succeed. I am with you. I don't think this movie is nearly as likable without John Cusack. I expected to say Ramus coming in, but this, there were the tone of this was not as funny as I was looking for. And Cusack takes something that really could have fallen on its face for me, and he makes it so much better. So he's good at the slow burn, and he's good at this, you know, maneuvering within this slimy world and i think he nails it and he, he actually didn't want to take this initially when he read this he uh he he had to see the humor in it himself and that's when he said oh i didn't want to be around all these sad people and reading all the sad story all the time this was just depressing and then he said he got about two-thirds of the way through and he's like oh i'm starting to see the humor in this so glad he saw the humor in it because as you mentioned i would when i say i would rather not have bill murray you you, you know you're doing a great job so John Cusack for me. Best Supporting Actor, Brian. So I went with Cusack on this, not because he's actually a supporting actor. He's clearly the lead. But because when you say MVP, you can have an MVP, but it doesn't necessarily have to equate to who runs the show. And I I had to have a place to put Cusack after I gave Oliver Platt the MVP. And for all the reasons you just said, I mean, Cusack does run this movie. It's kind of one of those things where you have 
you really couldn't have this movie without any of the big three. The big three are important. I'll go a different sports analogy. Uh, if you don't have Cusack, Platten, Thornton, this isn't as compelling as it is. So you really need all three. So we'll call one M, we'll call another V, and another P. Maybe. I would contest and say that maybe um, Billy Bob Thornton's not as valuable as the other two and more replaceable. But more on that later. Chad, who is your best supporting actor? Well, I'm going to immediately reverse that discussion and I'm going to say Billy Bob Thornton. I actually thought he was the more fun of the two uh, between Charlie and Vic. And Thornton's just great at playing despicable characters and his dialogue was some of the best in the movie. I was just going to say, can we call them rock, paper, scissors? I mean, they they play off one another very well, even though Vic doesn't have any contact with Oliver Platt. Like, I just feel like you can't play the game without all three. I'm going to take that works for me. I'm going to take the road lesser traveled here. I'm going to go with Randy Quaid as Bill Garland as the best supporting actor. It's not what you're expecting from Randy Quaid either. And I really was intimidated by him. He was he was scary and he was he had presence. And that is a bit of a stretch for him. Uh, this is this is cousin Eddie out here guys and um <laughs> it it was good i had i had to say uh he was he had a big presence I, I honestly wish he had come into the movie a little bit sooner because he was so good so i'm gonna go randy quaid here yeah that's a good call hidden gem brian my hidden gem is roy gellis like i had mentioned uh previously his whole small stint in this movie was such a crucial pivotal point for the main characters that he he really deserves more attention than he gets screen time great one and i love how they don't show him for pretty much most of the movie yeah like he's in such shadow and you don't see his face you see the back of his head he's in a box i mean you're at about an hour it's in there when you see his face Yep, and, and that's all that, that noir piece. Yeah. Chad, who's your hidden gem? TJ Jagodowski. He played Officer Tyler. He's he's only in the movie twice. Two very short scenes pulling over Charlie and checking on him. But the corny, stupid little games that he's pulling and kind of the, hey, I can't bust you, or so I've got to pretend to be nice, but I really think you're a jerk. I loved him and wanted one more scene from him. Okay. Well, you got one more when he dies. Well, yeah. Brian, to clear with it, clarify <laughs> one thing, Ronnie is the guy who's smitten by the stripper in the first scene. Yes. Brad Smith, Ronnie, is my hidden uh, gem. He's just <laughs> so funny. Good comedic relief early on. And uh, uh, the movie sobered up even beyond the heavy start. But uh, I did like that goofy, you know, he just has this exaggerated facial quality to him. A good casting for a small role. It's, it's uh, dopey boy meets dopey girl. Yes, and they're they're probably they're they're probably two of the better people in this movie too. I was gonna say John Cusack would be in a much better boat if he just had been smitten with her instead. So let's go with uh, recast, Brian. If you had to recast somebody, who is it gonna be and who you're gonna put in their place? Okay, so I don't want to sound like I'm poo pooing on Randy Quaid. But I would have loved to have seen Randy Quaid's character being played by Brian Cox. Mm, okay. 
He can be really intimidating. I think this is the fourth time this year Brian Cox has worked into uh, uh, the uh, podcast for superlative points here. So, uh, Brian. Listen, I'm completely guilty of the fact that if I were a director, I would have my people. Like, I have people I like. I have people I have thought of for roles. And in this scenario, this is a Brian Cox role for me. Okay. I'll, I'll admit to my guilt here. I've got uh, I'm I'm hurt on this one. Quaid was a strong pick for my best supporting actor, but uh, I'll I will allow it. This was no disrespect to Randy Quaid, or Bob Huggins, their alter ego. <laughs> okay, Chad, who is your recast? I'm gonna recast Connie Nielsen as Renata. Honestly, I found her delivery really strange. I don't know if that was a direction from uh, that she was given. It was just odd to me she's a capable actress she's good as lucilla and gladiator and ipolita and wonder woman but just not here we mentioned before monica belushi i want to see her in this role i think she can do that sultry seductive dialogue much better than what connie pulled off i'm with you i'm replacing connie nielsen i'm not into her in this role i just i mean it's not a likable character but i still feel like there's I feel like I need something more from this character. And I'm going with Christina Hendricks here. I think she could put you on a string and dangle you around like a puppet so much better. Uh, with Connie Nielsen, I've just kept saying, I was like, I, I, I was very frustrated throughout the movie. It was just like, John Cusack, I was just like, please just leave this woman alone and go away. She's, she's, not, she's, <laughs> she, she's no good. You just get away from her. She's nothing but trouble. But uh, and, that, and that's where somebody like a Monica Belushi or Christina Hendricks would be able to. You might be able to be like, oh, well, you're in the tractor beam. Okay, so can I can I give you a, a different take on this? Sure. Look at it in terms of who his wife was, and versus type. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. That's fair. Yeah. But I'm I'm, I'm gonna go with Chad on this one, and I liked his recast as well. The best shot of the movie, Brian. Roy's shot from the trunk. You can shoot a man in the stomach from a trunk without seeing him. That's the best shot of the movie. He, uh, you know, Billy Bob Thornton said, well, that's just blind luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paraphrased a little bit. I exactly. Gotta take the F-bombs out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was great. I mean, there, there was even a little bit of tombstone in there. It's like, Dang it, Roy, you're dead. Fall down. (laughs) (laughs) Don't just stand there. Your plan's (laughs) over-optimistic. Yeah. (laughs) You've lost four 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 quarts of blood. blood. And you're you're out of ammo. (laughs) So the, uh, my best, oh, sorry, Chad, what is your best shot? Yeah, I really like the shot on the pier of trying to, dump Roy I thought the contrast of the bluish light and the snow and the dark trees in the background with that frozen lake was uh, a really cinematic moment for a movie that didn't have too many of those agreed there I mean I thought it was kind of fitting that Vic even kind of goes it's kind of beautiful out here which was completely out of character for his character and then you're right that's why they had to construct that whole set so they could have that control because it is the climax of the movie there's another turn after this but i don't think it's nearly as suspenseful as the doc scene my best shot is going to be charlie looking off in the distance contemplating 
to himself what his next steps are going to be as Sydney siphons the gas off of the RV at the end. It's, I believe it's the DVD menu. It was for me anyway. And uh, I've actually seen pictures of John Cusack just in the scene and not knowing what it was from. And I just think that it's kind of shows you the, the sense of loneliness that he has and the wind and the coldness and how open the, his future is as he's about to, you know, drive off into the grade wide open. Russ, the fact that you own this movie now makes me feel like my job is done. <laughs> For the whopping price of a dollar. Price doesn't matter. Like, you can... I've bought movies for next to nothing and had huge impacts in my life. I think everything is is relegated to the price you pay for it. And the meaning is so much greater. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, my folks got me Band of Brothers when it first came out. It was $100 on DVD. First came out, Christmas present. I've watched that show so many times off of those DVDs that it was probably worth $5,000 to me. Nice. Well, you know, if you were renting it off of iTunes for $3 an episode every time, then yeah, you, you might be getting up there then. At that point, HBO Go is probably the place to go. <laughs> probably. Uh, best scene, Brian. Everything from trying to get the trunk in the car to Gladys being thrown on top of Billy Bob Thornton and him drowning. I think that's cheating. I think that's three scenes, but that is definitely the best part of this movie. I, I can't. I, I, I can't pick. Like I, I really can't because the whole Lincoln Mercedes debate is amazing. Him <laughs> hitting clubbing the trunk with the golf club, and then them talking about it's like, oh, you've been going on on about how spacious this thing is. Like that whole thing was awesome. Like that's one of those back and forth I could easily see see being used in like a drama club and then them sliding the trunk down the icy stairs and going across the dock and then he's all like I'd rather push like that's him thinking that's my point when I was saying he's always thinking about this like no nope. maybe it's not going to make a difference in the end but I could see it being better if he's on the other end of the dock so Brian's agglomerating a couple of scenes here. Uh, we're going to allow it for uh, uh, to, to move forward. But uh, Chad, what's your best scene? Yeah, I'll, I'll get into specifics there because it, it starts where Brian was talking about loading Roy into the Lincoln when they don't succeed and Roy talks. Uh, Vic just loses it. And he goes to town on the, the case with a golf club. And it's about 30 seconds it is just an exhausting effort and you hear Vic kind of protesting in the trunk and just the camera stays on Vic as whap 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 and he's just trash talking Roy the entire time it was great it was I'm gonna kill you Arglis I'm gonna kill you you gotta let <laughs> me out it's your only hope you just said you're gonna kill me I didn't mean it. Was, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I, I also like the gunshots going off. I took his gun. He must have another one. He must. <laughs> He's folded up in there like a pretzel. I don't understand how I could get to it. <laughs> I wanted a little more of this. And I'm okay with keeping everything as dark and heavy as it was throughout the movie. I needed a little more of these outbursts. When Billy Bob lost it and, and was just railing on this box with a golf club, 
that was good stuff and the sarcasm that Cusack has which is is trademark Cusack I want to see him be able to use that sarcasm more in this and so uh, great stuff here this 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 started to feel like Harold Ramis momentarily here and um, I I really enjoyed it so I'm with Chad in the garage of trying to load the box uh, with uh, Roy Gillis in it into the Lincoln failing then going to the Mercedes so really great stuff there change one thing Brian my change one thing, and this is not going to be shocking, more Pete, more Pete more often. I would have liked to have seen the possibility that as far as he was driving around, Pete was always in the back seat. Like, just have him pop up for a, a drunk, like, yeah, but this, and then back down again. So all these bad things keep happening. And he gets back out to his car. He keeps forgetting that Pete's back there because he's passed out. And he pops up for something. Now, obviously, that wouldn't work for the whole trunk scene. But just having that kind of like, I'm still driving this drunk guy around. I'm, and I do think that that would work well to get my goal of getting more humor into it. So, sure, more Pete. It's a plus for me. What about you, Chad? I think I'm going to lean into the noir uh, styling and change this to a black and white movie just to really oh i'm game for that sure go into it yeah i like it this yeah this could have easily been and i'm going to steer deeper into the noir world as well and i want to hear some more internal narration this movie actually opens up with john cusack's character charlie doing some internal narration telling you what's going through his head and there's a lot of thinking in this movie and they do a pretty good job of giving you an idea this is a credit to Cusack's unspoken acting and Ramis does a decent job of capturing that however stylistically I would like to hear more contemplation through narration going through there I want to I think there's an opportunity for comedy in that too because I believe that Cusack has a good delivery I trust him and I like that narration to get us going don't take it away from me I need it to come back here and there throughout the movie so more narration Got it. I like it. Best quote, Brian. I have so many of these. I'm going to go with one night driving a Mercedes and you're already an a-hole. <laughs> that was a good, yeah, a very good one. Uh, Chad. Uh, Fry mentioned it earlier, but Charlie and Vic's dialogue where Charlie says, it's Christmas. Everyone's nice on Christmas. And Vic responds, only morons are nice on Christmas. Boo. It's true. <laughs> so... I'm going to set the scene to lead up to this quote a little bit so you capture it here a little bit. But they're standing outside of the, the house and there's a lot of good stuff here between Pete and Charlie. But Pete says, listen, Charlie, before we go in, there's something I have to tell you. It's been on my conscience and you can punch me if you want to. And then uh, Charlie's just calling me like, I don't think I want to. Back when you and uh, Sarah Beth were uh, still married last year, she and I were screwing. Not surprised at all. John Cusack just says, no kidding, as if he totally knew. And then Pete uh, digs his hole deeper. He's like, like minks, <laughs> everywhere, on the table, in your bed, in the garage. And Charlie just, just like shrugging. He's like, wow. He's like, Jesus, Charlie, we're friends. Doesn't it make you angry? And then Charlie, Charlie has this amazing line where he says, yes, it just yes. makes me curious. It makes me wonder who she's screwing now. <laughs> and, and, then, and then all of that burden that Pete was unloading on Charlie suddenly came right back on Pete's doorstep. And... The calmness at which Cusack does this scene is brilliant, and uh, this is why he's my MVP. This is uh, this that line made me go. I I I uh, I actively went out loud. I was like, oh, 
<laughs> yeah, that's a pretty big burn. So, Brian, we've come full circle. What would you rate this movie on a five-star scale, half-star intervals? I'm going to give this a four. Uh, I'm going to admit that I'm giving it probably an extra star because it snuck up on me and surprised me out of nowhere, and that puts a little uh, place in my heart. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a solid four. What about you, Chad? Five-star scale. I think I'm going to go four as well, and this is a weird four for me because I didn't really like Renata. I didn't like that she was treated as a prize and i kind of wanted better roles for the women in this movie this wasn't really like a male power fantasy or something so i, I felt like the women were a little underserved but uh, i really like charlie and vic and pete and those dynamics okay and all good comments by the way i'm gonna go with three i'm a little cooler on this than you guys are i did enjoy it but i don't feel so i was entertained but i didn't have a very fulfilling feeling in watching this movie and it's not that all this bad stuff happens on christmas it's that i don't necessarily like where this movie finishes out i the alternate innings did not help by the way i just felt like the journey was interesting the people were good i just felt like i wanted a little more complexity i wanted that picture of the councilman to come back and intertwine in the end i wanted maybe another character from an arriving gang to get involved and i wanted a few more twists and turns to come in to the last portion of it. It was a little more straightforward than I expected. And again, it didn't make you feel very good at the end. What he does with that money, if he had just said, I want a new life, I just want to escape, and this it's not even about the money anymore. And if Sydney looks back and the RV and his kid's like, Dad, there's a bunch of money back here. That might have been a nice uh, way to go out on this. And as Cusack just drives off into the, you know, wide open with Oliver Platt's character. Okay. So yeah, a bit too saccharine sweet for my taste, but I like your optimism. Yes. Yeah. I, I you know, I, 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 I just said it earlier, I'm the sentimentalist here. I like my Christmas movies. So join us next week as we count down our top 20 star Wars universe characters. Remember all the Lords, ladies and knights, the retro movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Uh, you can send us your bad movie ideas, but you can also send us good movie ideas, or if you want to be on the show or engage with us more, that's a great place to do it. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Modern Cars. They all look like electric shavers.